we have been studying from 1 Timothy, but I want to detour from Timothy this morning and, and instead turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, and we are going to be reading from verses 11 through 17. Luke chapter 7. While you're looking for that, let me just note to you that Christ is not simply a healer of the sick. What we see here is that he is especially the healer of the dead. Does that make sense to you? Uh, Death is often painful for the person going through it, but certainly for the people who uh, are left behind. Um, Death is also eventual. Often death is unexpected. Seldom is it welcomed. Usually death is accompanied by suffering. No question about it. God did not create your suffering, my friends. The simple answer is that you created your own suffering. I'm not looking to be callous here. Uh, What I'm saying is that each one of us are a part of a fallen race. And therefore, each one of us are embedded in suffering. Suffering is bound to happen multiple times in various degrees all through life. What Jesus Christ does is he sees us through our suffering. Some people would rather have Christ eliminate the suffering. Instead, what Jesus Christ does is, well, he like puts us on a sailboat so that we could sail through the suffering. And some people, well, maybe all of us, often say, well, Christ, thank you so much for that sailboat. But can't you just get rid of the suffering? Can't you just get rid of the storm instead? And there's no need to go on a sailboat across the sea of suffering. What we see here in our gospel text, in chapter 7, verse 11, is the narrative, the true story of a widow who is burying her only son. And it's a horrible day for her. She must be absolutely wrecked. Her life is completely broken. Her life is here overflowing with suffering. Some of you know what I mean. You've lost a son. You've lost a daughter. Life frequently overflows, my friends, with suffering. You know, people often ask me, so how was your day? And um, I I try not to be a downer. But in all honesty, think of what I do from day to day. And listen, I'm not complaining. I'm just being real with you. What do I do every day? My job at least in part, is to console those who are brokenhearted, right? To console those whose lives are challenged by suffering. Um, And so on a daily basis, I get phone calls with people who have poor news, sometimes devastating news. Who do you call when, when you receive bad news? Often you call, eventually, the pastor. That's me. And that's what I'm here for. Um, Who do you call when your marriage breaks up? 
Who do you call when the diagnosis is cancer? Who do you call when the, the accident is crippling? When the child abandons Christ after a life of raising him in God's word? Who do you call when the sin is pornography? When the relationship is adulterous, who do you call? When the words spoken were life-shattering, or when the business goes bankrupt, or when the girlfriend says, I just want to be friends, who do you call? Often most people eventually call the pastor. Now, who do people call, who do kids call when they get their license? Grandma. I don't get those calls. Feel free to call me, my friends. Whenever your life is broken, shattered, feel free. I'm all ears. I would love to share in your suffering. But I'll add this. I would also love to share in your rejoicing. Feel free to send me good news, too. A call, an email. (laughs) I'm happy with that. But my job, by and large, is to console the brokenhearted. And why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because I want to stress of how aware I am of the sufferings you face, the sufferings we face in this broken, suffering-filled world. Suffering is indeed real. And your suffering is probably not like my suffering, and, and my suffering is probably not like her suffering. But the truth is, is that suffering hurts, and, and, and suffering leaves scars. And suffering makes us wonder, what's going to happen next? Suffering is real. And, and the truth is, is that the more people you know and love, the more you suffer. And yet Jesus Christ said, love one another. Well, what we see here in our text is that Jesus finds people whose lives are indeed wrecked. And he pursues these people. He tracks them down. He tracks people who don't ask him for comfort and people who don't seek him. Jesus here literally reaches into death and he brings life. Both for the dead son as well as for his widowed mother and for all the people surrounding. Dead people do nothing to participate in their healing. It is solely God's gift of grace. Take a look at the text. Luke chapter 7, 11. It reads this way. I'm reading from the ESV. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and he touched the bier, and the bears stood still. 
And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I have three simple points, but I think they're very important points for us this morning in regards to this young man, this woman, and the people around. The first one is this. Notice how Jesus Christ places emphasis on the widow, not on the miracle. Jesus Christ places emphasis on the widow, this mother that just lost her son. He doesn't place the emphasis on a miracle. Now, what tends to catch our attention in this story? Obviously, it's the miracle. Young man is dead, and now he's alive and talking. Uh, but, but Luke here places emphasis on the widow. Look at verse 13. You notice there it says, The Lord saw her, and he went up to her with compassion, and he spoke to her. He comforts her. He says, do not cry. His compassion was not for the deceased young man. Oh, poor young man. He died so young. He had so much life ahead of him. No. His compassion is for the mother. Verse 15 says, Jesus gave her son back to his mother. Christ's interest here is focused on this ruined woman. Life was given to her son, yes, but hope was given to his mother, to this woman who was suffering. Verse 13, you see there that Christ had compassion on the widow, the woman who had already lost her husband. And now she was burying her son, mind you, her only son. And what we see later, it's her only young son. And ironically, if you will, they live in a town of Nain, N-A-I-N. The word Nain means delightful. Not a very delightful day in Nain today, is it? At least not yet in verse 13, but things are going to change. You know the rest of the story, we just read it. Nain was in the middle of nowhere. It was about five miles southeast of the city or the town of Nazareth. Um, it was an insignificant town, mentioned only here in the New Testament. Uh, insignificant also means that it was a poor town, uh, filled with common people, people of no prestige whatsoever. Now, she was widowed, meaning she had already buried her husband sometime earlier. So this funeral procession was at this point familiar to her. She's done it before. Yeah, let me just pause here and let me suggest this to you wives. Wives, treat your husband with this story in mind. So that on that day, that eventual day when you are in the car following the hearse with your husband's casket in it 
the body of the man who lay beside you for so many years so that as you're riding in that car, you will not be biting your lip in regret. And somebody just reminded me this week, men, treat your wife in a way that she will miss you when you leave the house in the morning. I remember some years ago sitting at Friendly's on Father's Day and eating my, 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 my friendly hot dog. And, um, and, and, you know, everybody's eating and talking. I'm looking out the window, and, and I see two cars pull into the driveway or to the parking lot. And uh, one parent comes out of one car, one parent comes out of the other car. Out comes three kids from the mother's car into the father's car, and there's the hugs and the kisses. But between the parents, the only words they say is what they need to say. I know divorce happens, but forgiveness needs to happen too. It needs to happen for your sake, for your spouse's sake, for your children's sake, but for the sake of God's word in you as well. Forgiveness needs to happen as well. Well, here we see a widow who must have been fully dependent on her son for an income. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but what, what we do know about that day and age is that a woman had nothing of her own in that culture in that time. She was fully dependent on her husband, and if not her husband, on her son. Losing her son means that she loses everything. She has no opportunity to make something of herself. It would be very, very difficult. No way of supporting herself. So this is not just the death of her son. This is the death, most probably, of her livelihood as well. It is a deeply sorrowful day for her. And so Jesus comes to her. He comes to her with compassion and with power. Both. I wonder if there was, this woman even knew of Jesus Christ. Well, we do know from the context, if you read earlier on in the chapter, we know that Jesus Christ is traveling about 20 miles from the city of Capernaum. Verse 11 tells us. And he's traveling along here with his 12 disciples. And what we read in this text here is that there is a crowd of followers with Jesus Christ. Now, imagine this. He's walking 20 miles. a long walk. He's walking 20 miles with people picking his brain. He's walking 20 miles, which means there are 20 miles worth of mouths to feed along the way. 20 walking miles of pit stops, of conversations, people lagging behind and having to wait for them to catch up. 20 walking miles of people asking, why in the world are we going to Nain? What's inane? It sounds inane. 20 miles of eager expectations of people looking for hope. And what we see Christ doing here very deliberately 
is going to a place where he is going to display his compassion. Notice here that Jesus Christ sought this woman. He sought her out. A woman whose life was wrecked, he sought her out. My friends, Christ seeks out his own. No man left behind. No woman left behind. Christ will have his own. Now, Christ is not ignoring the young man. But there is something of equal importance to Jesus Christ. And that is extending hope to the hopeless because of life circumstances. And that's what he's going to do for this woman. His focus is on the mother, not on the son. On the other hand, this widow does need to do something in order to receive this hope. She must stay still and listen to Christ. And this is your obligation as well. If you want to know the hope of Christ, you must stay still and listen to Christ. That's what she did. She found hope. That's my first point. My, my second point this morning, and it, it, it seems disjointed. I apologize for that. Uh, but you'll see as I go on how it all fits into the text here. I'm just drawing out some principles of hope, uh, how God, Christ, heals the dead based on this narrative here. Second, I want to emphasize that Jesus comes to people who are not even interested in him, and he makes them interested in him. Notice how Jesus comes to people who are not even interested in Christ. You see here that Christ chose to meet her. He goes to her and he encounters her very intentionally at a funeral procession. The woman was walking in the procession as the body of her son was being carried on a stretcher, open casket type thing. And the text tells us that a crowd from the city walked to the burial with her. In fact, it says a considerable crowd, verse 12, walked with her. So you, can you envision this? The funeral procession. We do things much differently, right? We all get in cars full of air conditioning, nice and cool. We turn on our lights and we just drive very slowly. Remember the days in which the hearse would actually pass in front of the person's house? Yeah, remember, some of you remember that. When I die, I want that. Here they're walking. They're walking to the burial grounds. A considerable crowd. Now, a common practice in those days, I would assume that's the case here too, is that for a funeral, you would actually hire professional mourners. People who were paid to cry. They may really want to cry, or maybe they were just, you know, invoking tears in order to get everybody else to set the pace, set the tone, set the mood, and cry as well. People who would cry aloud. And you could imagine then what the scene was like. Because you know how it is, right? You hear one person crying, and although you're trying to hold it back, suddenly when others are crying, it just gushes out. And uh, that's what I'm imagining here. The tears just gushing out, the crying, the wailing, and we are very reserved. They were not. (laughs) 
here, we're embarrassed when we cry at funerals. I, I don't get it. I don't get it. If there's any place we should be crying, it's at a funeral. But we, we try to hide it. I, I assure you, they were not hiding. They're crying. Not in this day and age. Not in this situation. Oh, the tears must have been flowing. Can you hear them? Can you hear the wailing? Can you vi visualize the grief, the despair? My friends, this was not a coincidental meeting with Jesus Christ. It was very intentional on Christ's part. It was as intentional as the, um, the, the healing of Lazarus after he died. And this is the beauty and the wonder of the doctrine of election. That we would be so self-absorbed and yet Christ would call us to himself so that we would then truly, freely choose him. That he would come to us and cause us to take interest in him so that we would respond and would be able to respond to him. He came to a woman who didn't know him, who didn't ask for him, who wasn't interested in him, but he was interested in her. He finds wrecked people, and he sought her out with his power and his compassion. And of course, it's the opposite of what we tend to do. Uh, we tend to steer away from certain situations, don't we? Uh-oh, I don't want to get involved in that. That's going to be very needy. Or, or that person is going to need a lot of help, and I don't know that I have the time or the resources or the know-how. So many a times, maybe not you, but most people here, we avoid people who are going to be too demanding on us, on our part, about us, our resources, our time. Jesus Christ is quite the opposite. Now, I remember, it doesn't happen so much anymore, but I was always taking trips to the airport. People were always asking me, hey, can you take me to the airport because I don't mind going down to Newark. You know. I remember one fellow who said, hey, what are you doing Saturday? Oh, nothing. Hey, can you get me to the airport? Sure. <laughs> what time? 3 a.m.? Like, oh. I'm like, okay, LaGuardia. I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> we intend to avoid people who are in need. We especially intend to avoid people who are grieving or who need significant help. Why? Because sorrow scares us. We, we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. Well, here we see that Christ loved people who required hard work to love. He loved them deeply. Christ seeks people whose lives are wrecked, people whose lives are plagued by the effects of sin, maybe their own sin, maybe the sins of the, the, that surround them. People who are damaged by the past, people who are wounded by their circumstances, maybe wounded because of their own bad decisions. It doesn't matter. Jesus seeks them out. And he takes interest in them 
and causes causes them to take interest in him. The scriptures say that the reason we love Christ is because he first loved us. Now certainly this, this woman's eyes were transfixed on Christ. Who is this man who is halting the procession? He sought her out and now she wants to believe. And look at what he says, verse 13. He says, do not weep. Do not cry. I would imagine that these words, do not cry, must have been to this woman absurd words at first. Do not cry. I remember many years ago when my eldest son was six years old, he, um, I, I told him, don't cry. Don't cry. He was crying. I said, don't cry. And he looked at me and I knew exactly what he was saying. He says, don't cry. I just stubbed my toe. I'm six years old. What do you think I'm going to do? You see, my consoling words were empty. Don't cry. The words of Jesus Christ were not empty. Because it's going to be followed up. Don't cry will be followed up not only with his compassion, but with his power as well. It's not just empty words of solace. They're powerful words of comfort. He's going to give a reason not to cry. He's going to turn that community of name back once again to a delightful city. He's going to give her hope. He's going to give her reason to believe. He is going to replace this life that has been totaled with a spanking brand new life in Jesus Christ, centered on his power and on his truth. And not because she asked for it, but because he chose to give it to her and she received it. One last point this morning. Notice what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ touched the stretcher of a dead man. He touches the stretcher of a dead man. Uh, verse 14 tells us that he touched the beer and they stood still. Um, the beer was like a stretcher uh, on which the corpse would be laid out. Uh, still a practice very common in, in certain parts of the world. Uh, the body is placed uh, openly on a stretcher and taken outside uh, of the city, uh, whether for cremation or for burial, as what much of the uh, good parts of the world still uh, practice. Uh, here, it was not cremation, but he was being taken out of the city. Now, what I find interesting is that by Jewish law, any dead body is ceremonially unclean, which means that the dead body is defiled. It could be the body of this young man. It could be the body of the dead gopher in your backyard. Any dead, any carcass would be defiling. And anyone who touches that dead body defiles himself. Which would also mean then that you would be unsuited for any holy or religious activities. In other words, let's put it this way. Let's put it in our context. If you were to touch a dead body on Saturday, you could not be here on Sunday. Right? You would have to go through a series of rituals 
of purification, sometimes it required days in order to once again be right and be allowed uh, to worship God. But this was no concern to Christ. He could have said, well, I'm a holy man. I can't touch him. No. He was of, this was of no concern to him. He stops the procession. He, he touches the defiled stretcher. And he speaks. He speaks to the young man, and look at what he says. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. Young man, get up. Now, keep in mind that Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. Luke the physician. Now, obviously, he doesn't have the the techniques and and the know-how of today, but he was a physician of his day. A doctor is a healer of sick people. And to a doctor, the idea of raising dead people is far beyond the expectation of the physician. Physicians don't try to raise the dead. They try to keep you from becoming dead because they know that once you're dead, there's nothing more they can do. That was Luke. You can see why he included this narrative in his gospel. Luke explains that this young man sat up and he began to talk. And then Christ escorted this young man to his mother. Now can you see her face? Imagine the delight on this woman's face. Imagine how she reacted. I want you to see here that Jesus Christ gives life to the dead. In this case, he gives physical life to the dead. In other words, it's not beyond God to raise the dead if he is the author of life. You know, raising the dead is nothing for God. Three times we see in the book of Luke, Christ raised the dead. We see it here, we see it in chapter 8 with the daughter of Jairus, and, and of course we see it in the account of Lazarus, his friend who had died. But what I want you to see here is, I'm not suggesting to you that God is going to raise your dead. What I want you to see is something of even greater importance, which is hard to fathom. What I want you to see here is that this account is an analogy. A true story, yes, but it is an analogy of what Christ is able to do and what Christ is willing to do for us spiritually. He's a healer of those who are spiritually dead. Christ is able to give spiritual life, which will last eternally. Now, this young man, eventually he died. He's no longer with us. He's been dead for about 2,000 years now. This man would not be resurrected. He would not be revived. We don't know how long he lived after this. But that's not the point. The point here is that Christ is the giver of life, spiritual life, eternal life. He resurrects your spirit from the dead. That's who you really are. This flesh just houses the spirit. He resurrects your soul. 
He gives spiritual life. And he is willing and he is able to reach into your spiritual death and give to you spiritual life. Look at what Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 4 reads. It says, but because of his great love for us. Why? His great love for us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He gave us life when we were dead, even because of our own faults, our own sins. It is by grace you have been saved, we read in Ephesians 2.5. We do not seek God. God seeks us. God seeks you. You're here this morning, hearing God's word, because he sought you out. Do you hear his voice? I know you got yourself ready. You had your morning coffee, dressed yourself and came. I know that. But you are here because Christ made you interested in him. And showed to you that you have a need for a savior. That there's got to be more to life than that. You're here because he caught your eyes. He met you. He stopped the procession. And he wants to give you life. Spiritual life. Could it be that Christ is saying to you, arise? Could it be that Christ is saying, get up, abandon your sin, and follow me? You see, Jesus reaches into our souls, and he gives us real life. For me, it was at the age of eight. I was just a little boy. That's when I recognized that I was a sinner who needed a savior. Now, I had been told the gospel many times over by my parents, by my pastor, But it was at the age of eight, back in 1970, that's right, I'm 60. You don't have to calculate. At the age of eight, that I heard the gospel effectively. And I knew that I needed a savior. And I could not ignore it, I could not resist him any longer. I heard the voice of Jesus Christ calling, and I could no longer resist him. And there I repented, and there I gave my life to Christ. And you know what he did? He gave me spiritual life, eternal life. It's not a matter of how old you are or, or how big of a sinner you are. It has nothing to do with it. Now, keep in mind, I was only eight years old. I was just a, a little boy. And by the way, I was a very nice little boy. Ask my mom. But I was just as dead in my sins as any big sinner was. Dead is dead. And so, anyone who's living outside of Christ is dead. Romans 3.23 reads this way, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. And all here means all. Well, in closing, 
Let me point out to you a few, a few facts I think we should walk out of here with in, in our hearts, something to contemplate throughout this week. It's a wonderful way to end the summer, by the way. Think on these things. One day we are all going to rise again. That's what the Bible says. In John chapter 5, beginning of verse 28, it reads this way. Jesus Christ is speaking. He says, don't be amazed at this. At what? For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Those who are in Christ, that is, will be resurrected to eternal life. And those who stand outside of faith in Christ will be raised to die a never-ending living death. That's awful. And that does not need to be you. And that's why Christ has come to you. People recognize here, in verse, let's see, it's verse 16. They say, a great prophet is among us. God has visited his people. They were amazed. And they worshiped Jesus Christ. Now, now, Dr. Luke, he records all of this. His professional reputation, by the way, is on the line, right? He raises the dead? Really, doctor? You expect me to believe that? Luke had to set aside all of his medical training and every human intuition in order to record what he saw, what he knew of. Christ rose someone back from the dead with merely the use of his words. No medication, no IV, no electric shocks to the chest, none of that, but rather just his words. Again, death is common. But keep in mind that death is not natural. God did not create us to die. God created us to live. Spiritual death is common. But God created you so that you would know him and live spiritually, even eternal life. This story here unveils to us the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it's a foreshadow, if you will, of what was yet to come. And, and here we see it right before us. As you read through the Gospel of Luke, here is the foreshadow. And soon enough, we see the kingdom of Christ being revealed. That he would give new life, spiritual life. And he is offering that new life, that spiritual life, to those whose lives, physical lives, are wrecked. Those whose emotional lives are completely destroyed, broken, and shattered. People who are plagued by the past. People who are plagued with no real hope. People who have no expectations for the future. Christ says, I'm here. I'm here for you. And God promises to his children that dead people will come to life. And live forever with him, not physically dead, the spiritually dead. And there you will discover in his promised eternity no more tears, no more fears. But you know what I'm looking forward to? No more sin. No more sin. Here are a few things to think about as we leave this morning. A few things for you to take notice of. Here's the first one. 
Notice here that the widow had a community that came around her. She was not alone as she mourned. She had a community that came around her. And, and I would recommend, I would suggest this to you, be so wise. Do not isolate yourself from a community that can be on your side. And I would say thus, be involved in God's church. Don't isolate yourself. Number two, don't accuse God of being evil because you suffer. God is good. And when suffering comes our way, and it will, when suffering comes our way, understand that that is part of living in a fallen world. There will be suffering where there's brokenness. This world is broken. But Christ alone can change your mourning into laughter, even in the midst of suffering. Only he can. No other and nothing else will. Here's a third idea for you to take home with yourself this morning. Not only, don't, we, not only should we not accuse God of being evil, but note this. God is not immune or indifferent to your suffering. He is not indifferent to your suffering. He knows your suffering because he has suffered too. He has suffered more than you. And he has said to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Who is he saying this to? He is saying to this to those who belong to him. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And one last point. God has come to you. I urge you to listen to his voice and follow him. Follow him. Let me pray. Our Lord and Savior, we thank you because you are the one who gives life. Beyond physical life, you give to us spiritual life. A life that will never die a life that will see eternity in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for coming to us when we knew nothing of you and you made yourself known. And for that, we praise your name. Amen.